Hello and welcome to Citizen Kane Minute, the show that examines the greatest film of all time, five minutes at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly. And joining me to discuss minutes 30 to 35 of Citizen Kane is my pal, Steve Givens. Hi, Steve. Hey, Rob. How you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you for asking me. I'm, I'm really excited to do this. This is going to be, uh, I've, I've been looking forward to this ever since you asked me. <laughs> Absolutely outstanding. So the minutes, like I said, we're here to talk about are 30 through 35. But before we get to the specific uh, details of these minutes, I got to got to start off with the standard question, Steve. So yeah. when did you first see Citizen Kane? Well, um, the first time I actually watched the film, uh, it was in college. And that's when I really started to become interested in like film history and criticism. Uh, uh, it's a long story to get into, but I had a, I had a particular challenge from a professor about another unrelated issue and it just kind of like started me getting to this research of like film history and I started reading uh different critics and whatnot about uh just learning about film itself and that's when I first watched Citizen Kane as a film in a whole however uh by the time I actually got around to watching it though I was maybe about 18 19 Round, but I'd already was very familiar with the various story beats of the film, and I like I knew about Rosebud and uh, all the other kind of major uh, uh, plot beats uh, and because of how pervasive the film is in popular culture. I'm, sure, uh, sure. I was um, I remember watching not too long before that, like uh, I think it was the Animaniacs who did a spoof of it. You know, <laughs> so like all the uh, yeah, so like I I was. I knew the film going in. It's similar to, I have a similar experience with like Die Hard. I don't think I've ever watched Die Hard completely through as an entire film, but I have, I have seen bits and pieces of it's enough that I've been able to piece it all together. And that's the way, uh, that I, uh, that's what I went into when I first watched Citizen Kane. Uh, but that wasn't my, uh, first introduction to Orson Welles though. Um, I first became aware aware of Wells uh, uh, from two very different sources. Uh, the first uh, time I remember seeing him was on the I Love Lucy TV show. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And also, uh, believe it or not, through comics. I used to watch uh, the I Love Lucy TV show after, day, after school, and I remember seeing the episode that Wells guest stars on. And uh, it was also my first real encounter with uh, Shakespeare, as uh, I think Wells performs... Um, uh, Romeo's death soliloquy on the show. Uh, so that was the first time I ever heard like Shakespeare. Not that it ever, it, not that it inspired me to go into teaching and become an English teacher, but you know, I, I just remember that was the first time I didn't understand a word of what he was saying. But it was uh, like it was just that was my first experience with that. As for comics, um, I learned about his War of the Worlds broadcast from reading uh, that Origin of Secret, uh, that issue of Secret Origins. Uh, with the Crimson Avenger, I think it was number five, because in the origin of the Crimson Avenger, the I think it was uh, either I don't know if it was Roy Thomas who wrote it or if it was Danette Thomas who wrote it, but or both of them together. But they used uh, the War of the Worlds broadcast as a backdrop, and they even had a few panels of of Orson Welles uh, like performing or reading the lines from the show. And I remember that I was at my grandmother's house when I read it. And this is kind of a funny little thing because I was prompted to ask her about the broadcast because I, I, I knew it was kind of a real thing, but I didn't know anything about it. And she was old enough to have been around 
to have, have heard about it at least. And in the comic, it showed people freaking out about it and, you know, like, you know, people just getting all kind of like rustled up and, uh, you know, worried about the aliens landing. Um, and I, so I asked my grandmother if that's actually what happened. And, uh, well, to understand something though, my family, they are like a no nonsense farming people. And my grandmother, although having a, some eccentric tendencies as she got older, uh, she was no exception to this. So her memory of that show was that she remembered hearing about the broadcast, uh, but to her, this is how she put it, it was like it was mainly like those dumb, gullible city people <laughs> getting all caught up in the drama. Like nobody nobody in southern Delaware was like believing it, you know, like whatever. <laughs> hmm. uh, but back to Citizen Kane, um, uh, when I was watching the film for the first time, it was actually a, a very unique experience for me because, like I said, it was the first time I'd ever I, I was familiar with the film. So it was the first time I ever watched a film knowing all of its main parts, and I was able to just focus on how well made it is. Like I was look, I was able to just kind of like, oh, this, that was kind of a neatly put together scene that looks really cool, or looking at the acting and things like that. Um, and I had a similar experience a few years later uh, when I watched The Exorcist for the first time. Like, I was uh, – obviously, it's a good thing I was much older when I saw The Exorcist. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd say yeah. – But in both those instances, like, uh, I, it really jump-started my love and appreciation for the craft of filmmaking simply because I wasn't worried about – what was going to happen in the story because I knew at that point. And so I was able to really kind of focus on, uh, on the stuff that you, you really don't focus on until you've had multiple viewings of a film. Wow. That's uh, I, you really uh, bopped around there from secret origins. With, <laughs> well, of course the show on our network. Yeah. And then you've got, I love Lucy and the yeah. exorcist. War <laughs> of the world. I just, I love the idea. I've seen that episode that you're mm. talking about, but I've, I just love the idea of like Orson Welles reading Shakespeare on I Love Lucy. Yes. Like, just very funny. And it's just like, oh, Hamlet, you're in a lot of trouble. I just, Orson, like, Orson could only be Orson. You know what I mean? Like, even if he's going to be on I Love Lucy, he's yes. going to read Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, if you remember, the premise of the show is that Lucy wanted to do Shakespeare with him. And so she shows up dressed as Juliet. And, and so she is trying to get him to do, you know, her uh, the the balcony scene or something, and uh, he's not having it. But um, <laughs> it was, you know, so that was I, that was my first encounter with him. Orson's like, I am going to bring him culture <laughs> to the American people if it kills me. Going to do it. So, well, that's that's fantastic. I mean, so is it a film that you watch? Uh, often, repeatedly. I mean, do you do you mm -hmm. go back to it every so often? I I watch it. Uh, I probably it's now. Here's the thing. It's not one of my like go to comfort films. Like mm -hmm. you know, I think we all have films that we just pop in, like when you're folding laundry or something. You know? Yes, sure. And I will watch it, but I do watch it uh, repeatedly. Like it's one of the films. Like if I want to sit down and get engrossed in something, it's a film that I will put in to watch. And there's like there's other films on that list. Left, like let me kind of just get myself like lost in a film and get completely invested in it and just kind of zone out for two hours and just be lost in the world of that film. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's one of those films. 
but in terms of a film that you just put you lightly put on and let it play in the in the background no 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 it's not yeah. yeah i mean as much as i love this movie it's not a background movie oh gosh no it's, not yeah. at all no yeah so <laughs> so do you think it's the greatest film of all time and by the way <laughs> by the way i've been asking everybody that yes, i they know should, i know they should know you everyone should know that when i ask that question there is an asterisk there mm-hmm. where I'm saying American film. I yeah. simply do not know enough about international world cinema sure. mm-hmm. to to even uh, try and incorporate that into into my question. So when I'm yeah. when I'm asking if it's the greatest film, I'm saying, is, do you think it's the greatest American film of all time? <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. Uh, you've asked uh, several people this uh, so far uh, this question over and over again. Have has anyone ever said said to you yet? Yeah, yes, it's the greatest film of all time, and I will fight you f- uh, to the death to defend the title or something along those lines. <laughs> no, I mean uh, so okay. everybody's everybody so far has been kind of like what you said, where it's like, yeah. is it is it like their all time favorite film? No, uh-huh. but is it the greatest film? Pretty close, you know. Pretty cl- yeah. if not. The pretty close to the top. Yeah. So. Well, I've I've actually thought about this question because I, as I've been listening to the show, which is excellent, by the way, and, I'm, and again, thank you for having me on. This is a, a fantastic honor for me. But uh, I've been thinking about how I would answer that question and why is it the quote unquote greatest of all time? Why is it? Why is it such an important film? You know, like it, it topped the AFI list, you know, like uh, in both in both iterations of that list. You know, why yep. why do people go to this film uh, as as something that is considered to be such a seminal and important film? And I don't I don't even know how one would qualify it as the greatest of all time. I, I, I certainly consider it an important film and, and an extremely influential one. Um, and in my thinking about this, I came up with the reasons for which I think that the, the film has been why, – why it continues to have such longevity. I, I think I can safely say it is a significant film, and what makes Citizen Kane so significant is that it achieves, in my thinking, two amazing feats simultaneously that not many films uh, – ever not not many films accomplish uh and the first one is that it marks a huge leap forward in the craft of filmmaking both technically and narratively um and a lot of films uh, some there are certain films throughout history that have done that uh one of them being and i hesitate to really been talking about this film because i find it a very reprehensible film but like dw griffiths the birth of a nation oh, sure was a leap forward in narrative filmmaking even with its represent a reprehensible subject matter but also in the same way that spielberg's jurassic park was a leap forward uh for the use of cgi in film there, there are these films that they come out that they just they just move everything forward they push everything ahead in terms of how films are being made and citizen kane is one of the those films. With that said, though, advancing the craft of filmmaking doesn't, to my thinking, necessarily signify a great film. Um, as I just mentioned, you know, The Birth of a Nation is such an awful film uh, for its propagandized view of the KKK and the demonization of American Afri- of African Americans uh, that it should really only be like a footnote for the part it played in film history, and in my thinking, treated only as a museum piece of sorts, with its value being purely academic. With Jurassic Park, uh, it, it, even though it has a stunning use of CGI and the first time CGI really incorporated effectively into a film, it, it is at its heart just a really 
really good B movie. <laughs> yes. uh, and I, I mean that with all love and affection. Oh, sure. sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as for Citizen Kane, it, it is certainly an innovative film, but there was, and I, this is going to sound like I'm dragging it, and I'm, I don't mean it this way, and, and, uh, but there was nothing being done in that film that couldn't have been done in other films in the sense of, uh, of the approach to the filmmaking. Like, like it's, you know, it's uh, Wells was just the first one to do these things. You know, he, he, he didn't go and like invent new technology. It wasn't like suddenly we were seeing something that was completely, that was completely uh, uh, germane to just Citizen Kane. The, 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 the stuff that he was using, all the tools that he has in his toolbox were tools that were available to everybody. Absolutely. Right. So Absolutely. that's what I'm getting at with this. But, but he had the genius to think, well, let me put these tools together in a certain way or to do certain things with them that haven't been done before. And like I said, I don't say that to diminish Citizen Kane because Wells was a visionary and he, and, and he was a great artist and, and the film is extraordinary. But I truly believe that eventually other films would have found their way to those same innovations. I mean, he certainly isn't the only great filmmaker out there. You know, that he wasn't the only visionary. I just think he was, he has the historical significance of being the first one to do it. And Citizen King blazed that trail first and uh, blazed the trail that all, all other films could follow, which is why I think it is, it's, it's, the film itself is such, uh, it, that's its most important achievement. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the second reason. I think it's uh, it, it stays in people's memories. It's actually, I consider it to be uh, a, a, my favorite reason and I find to be a more admirable quality. And that is uh, Citizen Kane is from top to bottom a finely made film. Every aspect of the production was clearly handled by skilled, talented professionals who were bringing their air, their A game to the film, and that had an A game to bring to the making of them. These are, I mean, these are people who knew what they were doing, from the actors to the people working uh, the set production, and everything was just uh, working. It was a firing on all cylinders, and. For Wells, along with his like own talent as an actor and a director, you know, one thing I always I, I'm impressed by this by this being his first film is that he surrounded himself with these people who knew their stuff about whatever area they were they were in in, 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 regards, in regards to filmmaking. Um, and I have to say that as a film buff, as someone who loves movies. That's a rare thing to see. That's a rare thing to see where you look at a film like you're saying in every aspect of this film is is phenomenal um or well so well done and i think i can count like less than 10 films i've seen in my life where i feel like every aspect of its production achieves that high of a level as a matter of fact i think the last time i recall feeling that way about a film was um uh, guillermo del toro's the shape of water Hmm. Uh, and, and well, n- not necessarily the film. The film as a whole was like this amazing and like a, a like the best film of all time. But I'm looking at that from a from a production standpoint, from like how it was being done. You know, I felt I felt the same way about The Shape of Water as I did about Citizen Kane. Like everything here is is done well. Like there's nobody here phoning it in. Nobody's you know the quality is there and that's something i've always admired about citizen kane above and beyond any of the filmmaking innovations uh that are attributed to it 
simply because, like, I think you've said it before in, in a previous episode, it's just a damn fine film. Like, yeah. this is this yeah. is just an, an entertainingly, it's entertaining and it is just an engaging film, you know, and that, that I give credit to the people who just everyone there being with, with Wells as their captain, everyone was playing their part and doing it to the best of their ability. It's an interesting thought experiment, mm-hmm. uh, the idea that, like, you're saying that if, if Orson Welles had not put all these elements together, yeah. maybe somebody else might have. You know, yeah. maybe maybe mm-hmm. Hitchcock would have or John Ford sure. or somebody. Mm-hmm. And it, you, know, you never know. It's like, well, if the Beatles had never come around, would, <laughs> yes. this, would the Rolling Stones have become this epoch shattering, yeah. you know, or would, it yeah. be, would we just not have had that? Yeah, uh, and it's you know, of course, that's a question that can never be answered. But it's an interesting idea, and I do agree that yeah, there are bits and pieces of cinematic achievements or developments that were done either just before Citizen Kane or alongside Citizen Kane. Uh, I mean, everybody talks about uh, how you can see the ceilings in all of Citizen yeah. Kane. And, mm-hmm. Well, you can see the ceilings in The Wolfman for Pizza <laughs> in the same year. I mean, you can. I mean, yeah, you know, there's yeah. over at Universal. There's George Wagner on a shoestring mm-hmm. budget and a guy with a bunch of yak hair on his face. And there's the ceilings. <laughs> so I mean, right there. But but of course, you know, Wolf the Wolfman doesn't have all these other things that Citizen sure. Kane has to it. So yeah, yeah that it's, that's a very interesting answer. Uh, and uh, and it's something to to ponder that. Geez, you know, maybe somebody else would have come along. But yeah, Orson. Hey, Orson was yeah. there. He's the guy yeah. that put it all together in the right in the right formula. Yeah, and, and it's also a, a, a part of that question could be which is greater, you know, inventing this stuff out of whole cloth or knowing, looking at what you have and doing something amazing with the tools that are already mm-hmm. there, you know. And I I don't think one is greater than the other. So I, again, like I wasn't, I'm not trying to bring. The Citizen King down a peg or two. I'm just saying that for me, the fact that Orson Welles had the ability to look at what was available to him and use it so uh, in such an innovative way and to, uh, and to do it at the service of making a good film, not to, um, not necessarily, I mean, there are some showing off moments here, but oh, even, sure. even his showing off moments were all about, uh, let me create a good image that, that gets this story across. It's all, mm-hmm. one of the things I really love about this movie is that everything that's done in this film is done at the service of the narrative. It's done to the, to service the characters. There isn't like a, uh, like a, a, a needless virtuoso shot just, just to show he could do it, you know, that mm-hmm. type of thing. There is a marvelous documentary on the King Kong Blu-ray, the 1933 King Kong Blu-ray, mm-hmm. and it's very long. It's like a three-hour documentary. Oh, my it's God. really entertaining. But it gets into all of the technical achievements yeah. that they had to do. And they were literally inventing cameras yeah, to yeah. do certain things for that film. And, you know, Wells didn't do any of that, but he was benefiting from that. But, of course sure. – you're sort of expecting that from King Kong because it's a special effects picture. Because of course yeah. it is. Mm-hmm. Everyone, you can tell from the, you know, right from the beginning. Well, this is obviously, but the, the idea that Kane or Kane, I, again, I've been doing mm-hmm. that through the course of the, I've been, <laughs> through the course of the series of inter, interchanging Wells and Kane when I mean, say one name when I mean the other. But the idea that 
that Wells would bring that level of special effects to what mm -hmm. most people would consider just sort of a straight drama mm -hmm. and showing that you could do that. It didn't have to be a special effects picture yeah. to have all of these sorts of things. Is Again, another amazing thought that you could sit there and say, well, no, we can do these matte paintings and do all these special yeah. effects. And I mean, this thing has as many special effects as Star Wars, yeah. but you wouldn't know it because it just looks like it's a bunch of people talking in a room <laughs> as opposed to a movie with, you know, a, a, gi yeah. a giant, giant dog. Yeah. Flying out, flying a spaceship, yeah. you know what I mean? So, uh, and, and yeah, and not to get too far afield of the five minutes we need to talk about, but um, going along with what you just said, uh, a lot, especially with the matte paintings, um, I look at those approaches that that Wells took as coming a lot from his theater background. Um, especially in that opening shot where we get the, a, a look at Xanadu for the first time. Um, that, that is something that is so, I, I don't want to say it's stagey, but it's, when, when you create a set for a stage, like you don't typically have the ability to change a lot of sets. You don't have the, the ability to, to do a lot of changes or show different angles. So the set you create has to ev very quickly and very effectively evoke a mood create uh, an effect for the audience. And that's the kind of thing I saw happening, uh, especially with uh, the, set the set design of, of Citizen Kane. Like everything is about creating some sort of effect in the, uh, in the audience uh, to, to advance the story along. Oh, completely. Yeah. It sets, yeah. A, it sets a very odd tone where you're not exactly mm -hmm. sure what's going on. Again, you're not expecting that for yeah. what you would think of as sort of a, a drama, especially when you yeah. look at the posters, yeah. the way they sold this film. They made it look like it's a, some sort of romantic drama of like, yes. you know, the women he loved. And you're like, what does this have to do with anything? So, all right, well, Pearl, let's uh, let's talk about the minutes then. Yeah, uh, you, you just mentioned it's minutes 30 to 35. Mm -hmm. They're going to start with Mr. Thompson being escorted out of the Thatcher Library, and they're going to end with Mr. Carter being very confused at the Inquirer, <laughs> trying to figure out who exactly he's talking to. So, mm -hmm. uh, like I said, the, the, the opening, the minute opens with, said, the, with uh, William Allen as Mr. Thompson trying to figure out exactly uh, uh, what's, you know, like, okay, he, you know, he read all of uh, the pages from Thatcher's mm -hmm. book. Well, just the pages he was allowed to, to, to read as we, mm -hmm. uh, as uh, the, that woman uh, very officiously tells him 44 to 132. <laughs> um, but I love that when, when Thompson gets up and he starts talking to uh, the keeper of the flame as it were, and this mm -hmm. uh, security guy Jennings, the camera pans up to include the full painting mm -hmm. of Thatcher as if yes. he's still there. He's still pretty, and the way the two, the way Jennings and the woman look up at it, and this kind mm -hmm. of wonderfully, like, oh, like he's, you know, he's really, he's part of this conversation, even though he's a painting, he's mm -hmm. part of the conversation, and uh, I, I love that, and I love the uh, the way Thompson, where he says, uh, "You're not Rosebud, your name's Jennings," and he goes, "Goodbye, mm -hmm. thanks for the use of the hall, <laughs> goodbye, everybody," and it's it's probably the most sort of character we're going to get from him, where he's just sort of like, okay, <clears throat> he's kind of tired mm -hmm. of having to genuflect. Yes, the, the ghost yes. of Mr. Thatcher. So he has that kind of flip. And there's that great sting by Bernard Herrmann. Yeah, wah, so wah, 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 wah. It's, it's yeah, a great way to end the scene. It sounded like something out of the Three Stooges, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, um, I, it, it was, yeah, it, that, I mean, going, I mean, I don't want to talk too much about what's happened previously in that, but knowing how, like, um, how somber, 
what is revealed in that previous five minutes. Yeah, it looks and like that, a tomb, you know? Yeah, and, and, and also the set, yeah, it looks like he's in this, like, like where is he? Like, uh, I think you, uh, like, it looks like the Library of Congress. I think yeah. you were one of your past guests at that. And it, it, it's, and then to punctuate the scene at the end with, like, this humorous little, you know, uh, little dig that he does, you know. I, again, going back to um, uh, Wells's stage uh, experience, it's uh, the idea of like having that like comedic relief at the end of like a very tense moment. You know, it, it's a very common thing done in theater to uh, uh, to like give the audience a little bit of relief. It's also done in movies, but it's it's a it's a device that's really done a lot, especially in Shakespeare. Where like you would have like the uh, the nurse and Romeo and Juliet come out and say something body and then leave you know, something along those lines. Uh, so that's how I was kind of took that like okay we just got this really heavy information and we saw you know uh, Wells being ripped from his family so to speak and uh, and King. then or excuse me Kane thank See? you it's so easy to do <laughs> it's so easy to do yeah and then Kane gets uh, like ripped from his family and. Then it's punctuated by this reporter, this investigator, like, uh, you know, making a little joke, you know, mm-hmm. and, and kind of like uh, like doing a little send up of how, like, stiff and austere these two people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good, it's, a, it's just a wonderful, wonderful yeah. way to exit the, exit yeah, the scene, you know. Exactly. Um, and then we do a crossfade and we're in another office. And mm-hmm. once again, Mr. Thompson is in the bottom right hand side of the screen as the, uh, the the witness in any given scene will be mm-hmm. and uh you know we see in the previous scene that mr thatcher who clearly has sort of settled this up uh in uh you know from the grave that mm-hmm. he has this uh this this you know this moneyed uh hall devoted to his how great he is we see that these people worship thatcher thatcher basically worships himself that he's yeah. put up a giant yeah. painting of himself at, uh, mm-hmm. at his library and then we're going to see Mr. Bernstein's office where we see another painting of, behind yeah. him of this time of Cain. Yes. And so we've got Thatcher kind of worships himself, but Bernstein worships Cain. All these mm-hmm. years later, he still worships Cain. And I love the set deck in that we've got um, Everett uh, Sloan here playing Mr. Bernstein. By the way, and I mentioned mm-hmm. in the previous episode, Everett Sloan was only 32 when he made this movie. Yeah. And here... Uh, with the old age makeup mm-hmm. and the way he carries himself, and the fact that he is sitting in this monstrously huge chair. Yeah. Uh, it's a Dr. Doom kind of chair. Yes, yes. It makes him look <laughs> tiny. It makes him look like he is an old man that has shrunk mm-hmm. over the years. And so it's a marvelous piece of business to suggest that this 32 year old man, this actor mm-hmm. who was hale and hearty right in the prime of his life, is this kind of decrepit old man. It's just a mm-hmm. wonderful shortcut to convey where we are mm-hmm. in time. It's just great. Well, in general, the the old age makeup in this film is, it holds up even even by, like, modern scrutiny. Like, mm-hmm. you look at this, I mean, you can still tell it's makeup. I'm not saying that it's, like, uh, you know, like, completely invisible. But it's not... Uh, over the top you know it's not it's not uh like again go back to what i was originally saying the makeup people on this were doing the the best damn job they possibly could to make it look as realistic as possible i mean if you look at um uh older pictures of everett sloan what in in the 60s i think he he ended up uh uh, not going to go too far afield here but he ended up committing suicide in the 60s and uh, he was also, uh, speaking of old television, he was on one of my favorite episodes of uh, The Andy Griffith Show. Hmm. Um, and he as an older man there. And 
he, it, he it's not that the not that the uh, old age makeup got it point got it per, pitch perfect, but they they were building on stuff that they knew how people naturally age. Mm-hmm. So if you look at him, pictures of him as an old man and how he looks in this particular moment in Citizen Kane, uh, you could see the logic being done with the makeup. You know, um, I, 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 I was I was a, I was uh, very surprised and pleasantly surprised to see that they like that the the makeup was being done in that way to make it as realistic as possible. Yeah, it, it yeah. does. It looks it looks great. I mean, black and white helps uh, cover up a lot of things. Sure, sure. Um, but but yeah, it is great. By the way, we should mention that the makeup artists, the three makeup artists uh, that are credited on Citizen Kane are Mel Burns. Lane Britton and Maurice Siderman. And, you know, boy, Hollywood can be a, a tough gig because you, you look at the, the three filmographies of, uh-huh. of these gentlemen, you can see how different their careers could, could go. I mean, uh, Mel Burns, who uh, passed away in 1977, he basically worked on a lot of A pictures throughout his, his career. I mean, if you look at, he did uh, Bringing a Baby, he did Gunga Din, oh, wow. he did okay. Love Affair, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, I mean, you know, like Citizen Kane is just one of his credits. And so obviously he had, he was just, you know, an A-level guy. So then you have Lane Britton, who had a very long career, worked all the way until 1985. Oh, wow. Did makeup on the Blues Brothers, of all <laughs> wow. things. Imagine that. Uh, as well as Tora, 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 and, okay. and TV shows like Starsky and Hutch. And uh, the Jack Benny program and, uh, okay. and, and some other things. But then you've got Maurice Siderman, who worked on Citizen Kane, but also ended up working up on films like They Saved Hitler's Brain and Bride of the Monster. So imagine <laughs> oh. working with Orson Welles and then 10, 12 years later, find yourself working with Ed Wood. Mm-hmm. That has got to feel a little strange. <laughs> you know, oh. like, he's th- now, now, by the way, I should mention Maurice mm-hmm. Siderman worked on other Wells pictures. He worked on Macbeth mm-hmm. and Othello, uh, touch of evil. So, I mean, he did lots okay. of other, Wells stuff, but I mean, the fact that he also worked on bride of the monster is just like, he's putting makeup on Bell Lugosi while he's <laughs> wrestling with an octopus. It is, you know, it's like, wow. Well, I, I guess that when you're, uh, like in the technical side of film production, uh, a gig is a gig, a gig is a gig. Yeah. yeah. You know, and that uh, you just you go and and you do the best you can with whatever you're being handed at that particular moment. In yep. time. <laughs> but, yeah, hey, <laughs> checks come either way. Yeah. Um, so uh, in the scene with Bernstein, it leads to one of the great monologues mm-hmm. in in this film, probably maybe in all time, where he suggests that maybe Rosebud was a a, a girl or mm-hmm. a racehorse, yeah. and and Mr. Thompson is sort of like dismissive saying, ah, I don't believe that it would be a woman. You know, that seems unlikely uh, that he would, uh, you know, so fondly remember a woman that he knew at one point. And then that leads to Bernstein's wonderful speech where he's like, you know, it would, you'd be surprised what you remember. And he tells this wonderful story about seeing a woman on the ferry carrying a parasol and he did never spoke to her. She didn't look at him, but a day has not gone by where he has not thought of that woman. And just such an extraordinary speech, the idea encapsulating in just a few lines, the idea that sort of, you know, happiness, maybe, maybe not even happiness, but, but a something big in your life could be right in front of you, just inches away, and you don't do it, you don't touch it. And then the moment is over, and it's gone, and it's never coming back. And the idea that Bernstein saw this woman, and it struck a chord in him. And he still, to this day, remembers it. 
it's just yeah. amazing. And so uh, one of the, I want to ask you, Steve, and I will give you a chance to think of this for, uh, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give my answer. So you have time to okay. think about it, but I want to ask you, is there, I'm not going to ask if you've had a moment like this, this significant, because this is, that's a huge thing. And even if, it, mm-hmm. even if you had one, it's nobody's business. That's, that's yeah, just for yeah. you. But I think we've all had moments where we, we have a chance to do something and we don't do it. Mm-hmm. And then we look back and go, why didn't I do that? And, and so I'm interested if you have had something like that. And the, the answer I'll give, I can give two okay. examples is uh, one, uh, many years ago, I was at the San Diego Comic-Con and I was in a hurry to get from one end of the hall to the other. And if you've ever been to the San Diego Comic-Con, uh, trying to get from one end of the hall to the other during the convention is pretty hard. I was filled, with, filled yeah. with people. And I was walking and I walked by a table and I just happened to look over to the right and I saw the great actor, William Wyndham. Oh, from okay. To Kill a Mockingbird and from yes. Star Trek yeah. and, and uh, she's having a baby and uh, all these wonderful films sitting there at a table. He had a table because he has yeah. a lot, a lot of genre credits and there was nobody there. He was just sitting there. And oh, I remember no. thinking, I remember thinking, Oh man, <laughs> I should go over and talk to him because I didn't, I, you know, I love Star Trek, but that's mm-hmm. not like the 10th thing I would have asked him about. Yeah, I you know I knew he was he's he's the prosecutor and to kill a mockingbird for yes. sake. <laughs> and so you know I would have like well I would and and but I was in a hurry to yeah. go to get where I needed to go and so I didn't and I remember thinking well I'll go back and see him later and I never did oh, and now geez. he's no longer with us and yeah. I always regret that that mm-hmm. I could have wherever I was going I could have been five minutes late it yeah. wouldn't have made a difference and. I could have had this nice experience with this older actor who probably was wondering probably why he was there, you know, a little bit. Cause he's, you know, a lot of younger mm-hmm. people, I didn't know really who he was. So I've always regretted that. And then the other one I will mention, which is very similar is in the nineties. Uh, I was in New York one time. I was going to New York a lot, showing my portfolio around and I was walking down eighth Avenue and, uh, um, carrying my portfolio around. And, and, um, uh, there's a man uh, directly in front of me at five feet or whatever. And then we get to the, we get to the, the street corner and it's a red light. So we stop. The man turns and I see it's Larry Linville. Wow. Okay. Frank Burns from yeah. Nash. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, I mean, everyone knows I worship yes. that show and I just, and I was frozen. I couldn't, yeah. I was like, Oh my God. And that was the first time I'd ever met anybody from the show. Yeah. And so anyway, the light was still red. So people couldn't cross. He kind of looked quizzical for a moment, like he was deciding where to go. He made a hard left turn down the street, mm-hmm. awake, and I was not going that way. I, got, I had to keep going 8th, 8th Avenue. And for some reason, I didn't follow him. I didn't. I just oh. froze. And, and, and I let him walk away, mm-hmm. and I've never seen him again, and now he's gone. And I Man. think to myself, this was in 1993 – yeah. He was not famous anymore. Mash had been off the air for a decade. He yeah. probably would have loved that some 22-year-old knew who he was. Not only knew who he was, yeah. but like would have been like, oh my, like I, you know, worshipped him because he was on one of my, <laughs> he was my favorite show. And I always regret that. And yeah. I, I can still see him. I yeah. can still see him descending down the street, getting smaller, and I'm just standing there. And I, I look back on myself and I say, why? Why would you not do that? And I always regret that. So neither one of them are on the level of Mr. Bernstein's reverie, but sure. it's, it's that kind of thing where you're just, 
you look back and you say, Mike, just walk forward. And nope. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, my notes about that line, because I uh, that line, well, there's so many great lines in this film. Uh, and that certainly is one of the best. Uh, the, the, his, the, I mean, the monologue he has about the uh, uh, the reverie of this uh, of this moment he had. Uh, that has when when I first watched this film as a college student, that line meant nothing to me. Sure, um, you don't have those experiences exactly. When you're you know, yeah. and you're like, regret. What do I regret? You know, <laughs> I, I will life. regret nothing. <laughs> no comeuppance. Yeah, totally. Uh, but now, as a forty-six year old, uh, I, I definitely that line has a lot oh, uh, more. Threats are resonant. piling up. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I, and I actually have one that is similar to the one that Bernstein has, uh, and I also have another one that's similar to what you just described. Um, I'll tell you the 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 first the one that I just, like yours is a few years ago. And this is before any of the new uh, Star Wars sequels were, uh, were even announced. Um, I had an opportunity, and you may have heard, you may know about this uh, convention. There was a convention, a comic book convention in New Jersey, where Carrie Fisher was going to be attending. Wow! And it, it, I remember looking at the pricing of it, and it was like. Uh, a meet and greet with her was like a few hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, uh, I, I mean, I've got the money, but do I really want to spend it on, like, I'd have to travel to Jersey by myself. And uh, do I really want to spend that much money? Blah, blah. I mean, and I, I decided not to. Cut to a few years later, the Star Wars sequels have come out, and then, you know, of course, she passes away, and now I don't have that opportunity. And she of all, I mean, Mark Hamill does the, the, the comic book uh, convention circuit as well, but it, but it always seemed like Carrie Fisher embraced it a lot more. Uh, than either uh, Mark Hamill did or uh, certainly Harrison Ford. Um, <laughs> and uh, and if you ever if you ever read her book, uh, The Princess Diarist, the the diary part where she has about her Star Wars her, her experience, like she talks about her affair with Harrison Ford, that's garbage. I mean, that's uh, that was written by a nineteen year old girl, and it sounds just like the rever- the 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 things of a, of a nineteen year old girl who has really nothing to say about the world yet. The bookend parts where she talks about reflecting back on that time as uh, as a uh, her time as, as as Princess Leia and and all the experience she had and how she was embracing the fans it only served to punctuate or to like sharpen my regret mm. because she seemed to appreciate the fans so much mm-hmm. that like oh my god I could have had a, a moment with Carrie Fisher and then I'm I'm not going to have that moment ever again mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I'd, never, I'd never be able to have that opportunity for that moment again and it had prompted me though and this is this is the I mean, we wax philosophical for a moment the power of regret is that it forces you to not miss opportunities down the road. Uh, the uh, upcoming opportunities. So whenever I have a chance to go to a Comic-Con and I have the money and I have the time and I have a, the opportunity to go meet people that I admire, I take it, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I got uh, a uh, commission from George Perez of, of Kid Flash because I'm mm-hmm. a big Flash fan. Um, I met Zachary Levi, the Baltimore Comic-Con a few years ago. Uh, so I, people, like I, 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 it's me, it's, it's, 
made me want to go and uh, not miss those opportunities. Uh, the second thing, and I'll, I'll make this quick because I know we're, <laughs> I don't want to take up too much more time, but in, I remember, I don't know how old I was, but I was at some sort of graduation. My mother had taken me and she was, I don't know what it was, but I was old enough where my, I, my mother could let me like wander off a little bit and, and stay within her eyesight. And so I was just kind of, we were, there was a stadium, I remember, and there was like, um, I don't know if it was a football field, but it was like a, a, a field of green grass. And there was a, um, uh, there was like a barrier, like a little tiny, uh, like you could step over, it was wooden barrier that kind of like that separated the grass from like the, the, the gravel walk area. Sure. And I remember, getting on top of that barrier and kind of like walking on it and balancing it. And suddenly I looked up and there was this little girl in front of me who uh, dressed in a white, white dress, little hat. And she was my age or maybe a little bit younger, but I remember I fell in love in that <laughs> moment. That was like my first big crush. I was maybe three or four years old. Like wow. You know, and I, I just started following her around. Like I, I mean, had it been, had I been an adult, I would have been a stalker. You know, like I was just started like, and, uh, I think my mother and the girl's mother saw it and they were just kind of like thought it was the cutest thing ever because my mother got a picture of it, of, of wow. me just kind of like just being uh, enamored of this little girl. Uh, and, uh, you know, my four year old self being enamored with another four year old. Um, I have to make sure I say that so it doesn't sound creepy. Um, but, uh, I, uh, but I, I, I think back on that. And I'm like, what was it that drew me to her? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, who was it? Like, is this somebody that I could have had a friendship with, if not a relationship? Who was this? Who did she grow up to be? Mm-hmm. You know, and would we even, would she even remember the fact that she had this boy, this little boy who was completely enamored of her? So it's not necessarily a, a regret, more so as like just wondering about the possibilities of that. Yeah, this thing you that know? comes out of nowhere. And yeah. that's, that's amazing that your mom had the presence of mind to take a picture. I mean, oh, that's. My, well, my mother is picture happy. Okay. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, you know, we, we this is pre cell phone. Yeah. A lot harder true. to do. Yeah. Nowadays, yeah. everybody thinks of taking pictures. <laughs> Every, of everything, but uh, that required a little more. Does, do you still have the picture? A mom does somewhere. I'd have wow. to. I have to go back and look. Well, my, my mother, it, when it comes to photographs, she's a hoarder. Okay. Uh, she has like uh, she was always. It, it's not unusual that she would have gotten the picture of it because she always had a camera with her at sort of outings like this, and so she was snapping pictures left and right. So she has this huge collection of all these uh, of, like photo albums, you know, and she, I, I have to ask her, she still has that picture, but um, you know, it, it was, it's just one of those moments. I it's one of my earliest memories. And again, I've always wondered about the, the, the possible, like where did our lives go from that moment? Like I know where my life went, but where did her life go yeah, in that a, moment? So that's amazing. That's an amazing story. That's oh, an well, amazing cool. story. 
I, I do have to point out that I would say that we've been talking for 48 minutes and we are 30 <laughs> seconds into the five minutes. So I just want to point that out. Very sorry about that. No, one. no, no. I, no. I mean, that's what a podcast is supposed to be. Well, it, you, you totally have my permission to cut out everything of mine. What's, you what's need the to point of it? You're supposed to talk. That's the idea. I just found it very funny that I'm like, wow, we are, we are at 30 minutes and 30 seconds. Well, if anything, that speaks to the power of the film. Absolutely. In yes. that it, it does. It brings you know, this, up so much with yes, so little. Yes. This is yes. what a, a good film does. And it goes back to my point when I was saying this is such a well-made film. There's so much going on here that you can, that you can, um, springboard from yep. and, and go into other things with. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so with the camera pulls in closer as Bernstein is telling the story and we see that the table that he's leaning, by the way, the table, the yeah. desk is massive as well. So again, yes. it diminishes, it makes it look smaller, but the, the tabletop is glass or marble of some sort, but it's a reflective surface. Mm-hmm. So we see him, uh, reflected in the table. So it's got even that, that, you know, kind of double meaning of, well, he's, he's, he's having a memory and he's thinking mm-hmm. of himself, and we sort of see he's almost like the, the, you know, the proverbial, like the dog looking in the, you know, the body of water and wondering who that other dog is. You know, that kind <laughs> of thing. So again, it's a wonderful yeah. uh, set decoration, uh, just helping underscore this scene as uh, Bernstein tells this this remarkable story. And I, I like that. Um, I mean, not that there really was any way to to do anything more to it, but I love that after he tells the story, they just move on. You know, they don't give Thompson a line. He doesn't say anything. He just lets it go. Um, and so then Bernstein then kind of moves off that, moves off the, the, the story. And, he says, you know, and, you know, I love that because it, there's a couple of ways you could look at it. Thompson doesn't, maybe Thompson doesn't get it. He's too young. He's like, why is this old yeah. telling me this story? Yep. Yep. But it also shows a great deal of trust in the audience in that the, the, that the audience is going to get the significance of that story. Yep. And it doesn't need to be punctuated by Thompson saying, oh, my God, that was a, quite a revelation. Thank you for telling me that. You mm-hmm. know? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, don't, they don't gild the lily there. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just let, you know, let the audience figure out that why that's significant as opposed to having a character tell you mm-hmm. uh, it's significant. So then they talk about uh, Mr. Thatcher, and, uh, and Bernstein is a little dismissive of Thatcher. <laughs> and he gets up, and he goes to the, the background, and he looks at his, uh, his uh, stock ticker. As it's coming in and, and Thompson not really defends Thatcher, but just sort of says, well, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. he was obviously very successful. He made a lot of money and, uh, Bernstein has the great line. Well, it's no trick to make a lot of money if all you want to do is to make a lot of money. I will say I haven't learned that trick yet. So <laughs> I kind of wish Bernstein could have maybe elaborated on that. I would have like, hold on, wait a minute. We'll get back to Citizen Kane in a second. Please explain that because that's. I found that to be very difficult. But, but well, I, I think that I think the significance there, Rob, is if all you want to do is make a lot of money, you know. I guess. And, and so yeah. the fact that if if those who if don't you care have a about lot of, nothing else, yeah. yes, yeah. <laughs> so you obviously have a rich, full life that goes beyond <sighs> having a lot of money. You know. Yeah. Well, I would. That's what I tell myself, to, so I don't yeah. cry myself to sleep. At exactly. Night. <laughs> I, 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 I'm willing to see what the other side. <laughs> life is like for five minutes. I can always give it up. Uh, yeah. You know, I yeah. can always make a lot of money. And then if I find my life is not rewarding, I give the money up. But I'd, I would have liked to have the opportunity. But anyway, sure. yeah. um, the, the ticker tape, the stock ticker is a great detail because obviously mm-hmm. that's, you know, a, a real time Twitter mm-hmm. of, of Mr. Bernstein making money. I mean, that's mm-hmm. what you see. He's checking how he's how his money is coming in. And it's a great 
way to sort of he dismisses stature with the line about, you know, to do is make a lot of money while he's looking at the money coming in. Like, well, Mm -hmm. it's easy to be dismissive of somebody who makes a lot of money when it's clearly kind of easy for you to do, too, Mm -hmm. because you're not doing anything. You're just sitting back while your money is making money for you. You know, that kind of thing. Well, and that whole sequence, um, again, the idea of uh, these interviews, it was such uh, one that's a brilliant storytelling technique to have these people just come in and be a character and give their viewpoint on Kane in whatever part of his life they were involved. But it's also a, a wonderful opportunity for a good actor to one, create a character, but then also like to just showcase their ability to carry a scene because even though Thompson is in the scene, the actor playing Thompson, that scene is all Everett Sloan Mm -hmm. uh, in his performance. Like everything is focused on what he's doing and there's no cutaways. There's nothing like he does. It's like, he doesn't get a rest as an actor. He's got to carry that entire moment through, uh, through to uh, up until the point of the ticker tape and uh, up until the point where he ends his interviews, like every, and uh, you know, I've, like I said earlier, I've, I've had some stage experience and the idea of like having a long sequence by yourself where you are responsible for keeping the scene going. That's a very daunting task to have as an actor. And because then, because you can't always say a line and throw it to somebody else and have them come back. I mean, you're not feeding off of anything. You, you have to, you have to set the pace yourself. You have to do it. And Sloan just uh, does such a wonderful job with it. I mean, yes, he's got the wonderful set to work with, but damn it, he works with it. Like he's got mm-hmm. the cigarette and, you know, he knows how, like he, at one point he likes, when he's telling the story about the, about the girl on the ferry, he leans over and you mentioned like the reflection in the table, but he, his body posture changes there where he's like definitely going into a moment, you know, and he's signaling to the audience that his, his thought processes are changing, you know, and those are all like, like just really wonderful, subtle choices that an actor makes that can uh, really just bring the audience into that moment so effectively. Absolutely. And yeah. he said, it's, and like, as you were saying earlier, it's everybody's bringing their a game here. It's not yeah. just Wells. Yeah. It's not just Joseph Cotton. It's everybody. Yeah, everybody exactly. is really delivering. So uh, then we get another fade and we have this matte painting and we scroll down and we're at the building of the inquirer and they've got Bernard Herman's got this jaunty music because again, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Wells uh, there did it again. Kane <laughs> and Jed Leland are setting out and they get out of this, uh, uh, they get out of the carriage and they're all excited. Mm-hmm. And I love, I love the suit that Wells has. He looks like a gangster with this sort of <laughs> black suit yes. and the, the big white hat. And uh, mm-hmm. Joseph Cotton looks a little more kind of jaunty. And then mm-hmm. um, following up behind him is another carriage. And we see that it's, uh, is uh, Mr. Bernstein. And he's mm-hmm. bringing in a bunch of bric-a-brac. Uh, you know, we see there's like a bedpost and yeah. um, a giant basket that looks like something you, like you'd get like when you like uh, – like uh, the kind of basket that like a snake would be in if you blow the and then we see the the driver and he makes a comment to Mr. Bernsey. Now it's frustrating to me because I'm trying to find all the actors in this film, every actor that has a speaking part or any sort of significant role in the film. I'm trying to find them credited. And I was not able to find which actor this is because there's nobody on IMDb that is credited as sort of like trolley driver or mm-hmm. mover driver or anything like that. It, it doesn't even say the name. It says AD baggage. 
and Express on the on the side there, but it doesn't mention who it is. So the closest guess I could get by looking, because unfortunately a lot of these actors were just sort of uh, you know jobbing actors, contract actors. So a lot of them don't have their pictures on on their IMDb profiles. The closest one I could sort of find was there was an actor named Gino Corrado who died in 1982, and he was in films like An American in Paris, Monpoc, Kettle on Vacation, Harvey. Uh, I'm thinking that might be him, because he's I forget exactly what he's credited as, but it's like it might be him, so I can't be sure that that's who that is, but it might be. That might be, and the picture you see of Gina Grotti kind of looks like this guy, so it okay. might be him, but he gets a genuine line, because he talks about complaining about all the stuff uh, yeah. that he's hauling and Bernstein says, uh, you know, you're, pay, you're paid for opinions off of hauling. <laughs> and he kind of just rolls his eyes and you're like, okay. And you just see that, that Bernstein, and we know this already because we see Bernstein as an old man, he's still got a friggin' painting of Kane, uh, in his office that he is just totally on board. Yeah. He's totally on board. He is Kane's right hand man mm-hmm. and he is just, he is going to execute whatever Kane needs him to execute. And when this guy even gives him even the slightest amount of lip, you know, he throws it right back at him. You know, he's just like, I don't want to hear it. Who cares if this stuff's, we're moving this stuff in? What's the difference? Because obviously it doesn't look like the kind of stuff that you would move into a newspaper office. So then we cut inside to the offices and we see everybody working along. And uh, there's, again, there's another great bit of physical business here yeah. where we see this post uh, that is dividing uh, the kind of the frame. And we see it again. We see the ceilings, the muslin ceilings, which were, of course, is this thin material that allowed uh, the boom operator to put the boom mic right above it. And therefore, you could see the ceilings and still pick up all the audio. And uh, that way it gave the, you know, these rooms an actual three dimension because you realize, oh, they have a ceiling as opposed to just being some movie set. But anyway, there's a post um, separating the frame. Um, mm-hmm. And we see that Kane walks to the right side of the frame as we see all these reporters are just sitting there scribbling away and they're not paying any attention to these two guys because they don't know who they are. And then we see uh, Jed Leland walk to the left side of the post. It's just, they happen to be where they're standing. And then as Kane gets a full, like two or three steps ahead of him, Leland stops, turns around, grabs the post and swings himself around the other side of the post so he walks on the same side as Kane. And it's just an interesting mm-hmm. bit of business that even that little meaningless piece of wood is, mm-hmm. is, is in Leland's mind, some sort of separator between him and Kane. And he takes the time to enter the room in the same exact way that Kane enters. It's a really interesting oh, bit interesting. of business. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, that's something that's a detail I hadn't noticed. I'll have to go back and take a look at that again. And that's yeah. a, because obviously your eye is focused on uh, Kane, because I believe that's the first time in the film that we see young man Kane. We've seen old man Kane. Well, we saw him earlier. Talk, Thatcher talks to him earlier. Um, we see him when he, the whole bit about the, I'm going to have to close this place in 60 oh, years, uh, that kind of thing. We do see him there, but it's very brief. Oh, gotcha. Okay. I thought that, okay. Yeah, I do remember, okay, I mean, I've never seen you. I thought he was, uh, that was still, but I'm talking about, like, a young, uh, young whippersnapper Kane. Like, this mm. is, he's, he seemed a little, uh, in not terms of makeup, but he, in that moment with Thatcher, he is a, a little bit more, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, I'm, I'm going to say worldly or something along those lines. It, He's it's been running the paper for a little yeah, bit at least. It's yeah. definitely, it's definitely a different, 
shade uh, to Wells uh, than what I, I think. I always think of this moment as being the first time we see like him coming in and he's like all about like, I'm going to go change the world type mm-hmm, of thing, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and not that he didn't have that quality with that scene with Thatcher, but there seemed to be a little bit more like reality setting in for him. Even oh, totally. Still Completely. Yeah. yeah. This is him right at the outset of, yes, like, yeah, I'm yeah, going to, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. going to, I'm, I'm back from England or I'm back from wherever it was that I yeah. was. Uh, he's kind of like Bruce Wayne in Batman Year One. Yes, he's yeah. coming back from Europe. He's like, I'm ready to be Batman now, everybody. Watch out. You know, it's that kind of thing. But yeah, this is sort of what it is. Yeah, which Robin does that make Bernstein then? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, hard to, hard to determine. So then uh, they call on the basically who's in charge here, and they say, oh, it's uh, Mr. Carter. And we see Mr. Carter played by Erskine Sanford. Uh, he died in 1969. He had a lot of film credits, a lot of Wells credits. He appears in The Magnificent Ambersons. He's in The Lady from Shanghai. And he's also in one of, uh, one of the greatest films ever made, one of my favorite films, The Best Years of Our Lives. Mm-hmm. From 1946, which also features Ray Collins, who is in this movie. So you got a couple of Citizen Kane veterans in this movie, and you got Erskine Sanford as Mr. Carter, who's running the paper. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is just a great bit of physical comedy here, where yeah. Mr. Carter gets up and he immediately goes over to Jed Leland, thinking he is Mr. Kane, because mm-hmm. ever so slightly, Jed Leland looks a little more. Uh, a little, a, a little more uh, presentable, a little more, a little bit more polished, a little more polished, yeah. a, a little more like a high society guy. Yeah. So yeah. he's expecting that, and he does this whole shaking hands thing. And I love the look on Joseph Cotton's face; he looks very bemused, and even mm-hmm. Kane is bemused. And then finally, and then leads to this, you know, practically almost Three Stooges again, bringing up <laughs> again. this kind of bit where he says. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm Kane, and and then you know, Mr. Carter thinks he's Leland, and they do this double take of you know what, who, what, and it's it's almost like <laughs> Avon Costello a little bit, and man, Erskine Sanford, uh, king of the fumferers. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a thing that actors used to do uh, in the olden days, and that you don't really see it much in movies anymore. But it's somebody going like. <laughs> kind of just like the, the, the effrontery of this yes. and he is the king of the front i mean his his lip is pouting out he's practically spitting and mm-hmm. he's just it's all of this and it's you know this movie features all sorts of kinds of things mm-hmm. i mean this movie's reputation for people who don't know it it's like oh it's this dour you know, it's homework. I have to sit there and watch the greatest film ever made. But here, it's very silly. Yeah, it's a yeah. very silly bit where they're all just like, oh, Carter, yes, Mister Mr. Mr. Kane, yes, Carter. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really, really funny, and it's yeah. the way that that Kane knows he understands that he is not as presentable or not as respectable looking as his friend, and he's finding that to be very funny. Yeah. I, and, and in that moment, too, there's something that I always marvel at in that moment or in that scene is when I believe it's a moment where Carter has realized that Kane is Kane. Right. And they start this overlapping dialogue with each other mm-hmm. where they're clearly not talking to each other or like uh, one will ask a question and then the other one will answer it like two lines later or something <laughs> along those lines. And it's like prototypical, like Robert Altman type yes, of stuff yeah. going on there. And, and I just, I, I've always liked that because of the timing 
because in order to do that, you know, an actor has to, it isn't just like you're reciting your lines. Uh, you don't say a line and then you wait for the other actor to say his line. You've got to keep going with your train of thought while the actor goes along with his train of thought. But you got to know those moments where your dialogue has to stop or where it has to punctuate something that he, that the other actor just said. It's almost like you're two musicians and you're playing counterpoint melodies to each other Mm -hmm. you know and so i've always like that moment i've always really uh, admired it for that for the the skill that it takes to do that um and then of course everything else going into the physical comedy of like they're at the at uh, at carter's office door and uh leland and um, bernstein keep coming in and out with furniture you know Mm -hmm. and they're like excuse me mr carter excuse me mr carter as they keep coming back in and out and uh you know and then carter begins to realize oh wait a minute i've lost my office my sanctuary (laughs) calls it (laughs) so yeah this whole so this whole bit this whole back and forth bit with the three of them ends with a loud crash Mm -hmm. and they look and they see and this mr bernstein is walking in with yeah. a million different objects. Obviously, they've piled this guy, this mover guy, probably just piled everything up and drove away. He was just uh-huh. like, all right, here, he's just dumping it all. And again, it ends with sort of this big piece yeah. of physical comedy where it's, 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 we don't see the pratfall because we just hear it, but it's just this kind of, we see that, you know, Bernstein is this, this, the loyal, the loyal yeah. subject, basically. And then, <laughs> and then he's even trying to shake the hand of Carter and confuse him even further by introducing a third person where he's talking about, <laughs> I'm Mr. Bernstein. And Carter's like, yes, we're okay. Mr. Kane. And then back to Carter. Yes. We're okay. Bernstein. Yes. Carter. <laughs> I mean, as you say, it really is remarkable that the actors had to keep all of this going. And by the way, when you watch the scene, everybody, if you go back and watch the scene, watch Joseph Cotton. As all this is going on, he is just having the time of his life <laughs> as Leland just kind of like, why? Like, oh, my God, this is all he's just kind of got this wonderful look of like, this is all very funny. Like, mm. this is he just really <laughs> enjoying himself. And it, the, the, the five minutes ends with uh, with Kane talking to Mr. Carter, as, as you said, he's about to find out that he's losing his office. So, I mean, these five minutes has like everything. Mm. It's got this marvelous yes. uh, monologue, which is you know, about some very serious moment in your life. And then it's got this broad physical comedy, mm-hmm. uh, which is really great. So I said, the movie just, again, it just has everything. And it, yeah. it, it's encapsulated in just these five minutes. It's a, it, it's one of the great speeches of yeah. all time, but also as we know, Herman Mankiewicz, excuse me. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously knew, you know, also know how to write this kind of back and forth, great rat-a-tat-tat comedy. Yeah. But yeah, I said, it's, it's a really, <laughs> truly great five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, and I was really happy that you uh, that I got assigned to this one with you because I was like, this, yeah, I I, I was uh, like I said, it, it, it encapsulates things that I really find admirable about the film. Um, you've got a, a a wonderful actor who you know uh, has a very small role. You know, uh, you know, Bernstein is the character that you're following. He's not the the any kind of centralized character here. But damn if Everett Sloan doesn't just make the most of it mm-hmm. uh, when he's in, in his moments as, as, uh, uh, as Bernstein. And so just seeing something like that, you know, it is when you see an actor doing stuff like taking uh, the material they're given and then just doing something really brilliant and interesting with it. Yes, this is why I love movies. This is why I watch because mm-hmm. I want actor to do that or see that kind of shot. 
playing back and forth with each other in terms of their um, of their dialogue and things like that. So it's just uh, you know, uh, like you said, that this these five minutes has it really packs a wallop. There's so much there for the uh, for the audience to uh, chew on. Absolutely. So, well, Steve, yep. thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. I had a blast too. And again, you know, I'm sorry I, I, if I got a little too verbose and uh, nope, nope. thank you so much for allowing me to uh, uh, share my own thoughts and feelings about this film. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, you know, it's, uh, if you give me something that I am interested in and want to, you know, uh, it's your funeral because uh, you're going to get me to talking about it, right? <laughs> Good or bad. <laughs> uh, hey, that, again, what else is a podcast for than to be talking exactly. about stuff? It's the true, point of it. So. <laughs> so anyway, well, great. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. And of course, everybody, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Citizen Kane Minute on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher. We're always talking Citizen Kane on Twitter at Minute. And finally, if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. There you can unlock various rewards. One of which is to be name-checked on a show of your choice. So if you really love Citizen Kane Minute, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. So that's going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Come back next week for more Citizen Kane Minute. What's the real truth about Charles Foster Kane? I wish you'd come to this theater when Citizen Kane plays here and decide for yourself.